Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show with Connor and Scott in it that will never get an actual serious name, but it's a show where we talk about whatever we feel like talking about. Sometimes that'll be interesting. Sometimes we're just going to ramble into a microphone. Oh, yeah. We're going to ramble, and then we're going to rant about stuff. It's eventually going to turn into a show where we complain about stuff, and then you're stuck listening to it. But, but you'll be enjoying it. But we So hope. I wanted to open up this... I guess, inaugural episode with a question. Scott, have you ever played a game called Dungeons and Dragons? In fact, yes, I have. Uh, I was going through an in-depth look on races the other day, and everybody, I keep seeing, like, stories about people playing, like, humans are still super common. I'm getting away from humans. Like, I still, my soft spot for races and Dungeons and Dragons. For those of you that don't know, I'm going to go over this very briefly because Dungeons and Dragons has gotten a huge resurgence in the last couple of years thanks to things like Critical Role and like... Stranger Things. Stranger Things and MAGFest having more live D&D events and like different cons and stuff like that. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is a tabletop RPG game from the 70s. I can't even really call it the 70s. It was 78, 79. It was created by Gary Gygax. That's a game about your imagination where there's a game master that essentially runs probabilities and possibilities by the players that play different characters in this made-up adventure world where they can and do certain things depending on what numbers on certain dice they roll, depending on what actions they want to do or attacks they want to make or spells they want to cast. I'm sure you've all heard the I attack the darkness meme or roll for advantage or roll roll initiative. All those types of terms have come from this particular tabletop game. And um, Scott and I have played it. I played it a bunch. I've been playing for, God, almost 10 years at this point. But um, I wanted to talk about races because races are cool. Races are essentially what you are. It's not the color of your skin. It's literally what you are because in D&D, there's more than just humans. You have the stereotypical fantasy elves. They differ between high elves and wood elves. You can have a half human, half like half human, half elf called a half elf where one family member is human. The other one's an elf. And usually the human one is the favored parent. Uh, you have your stereotypical dwarves ever since The Hobbit started making a bigger appearance and Lord of the Rings in general. Fun fact, half, hop, halflings used to be called hobbits. Hmm. And then the uh, Tolkien estate got mad, and so they had to change Understandable. them. Understandable. But functionally, halflings are hobbits. That's just, they just are. It's just copyright protected hobbits. But then there's like, I'm glad that like stuff like half-orc tiefling have become like more common mm-hmm. in years past dragonborn that got a big resurgence because of skyrim but they're very different so if you're like oh i can be a dragonborn it's not the same yeah um, the, and the dragonborn in skyrim is is basically human isn't he practically yeah. um he just has dragon blood in him and he can use dragon powers and shouts or oh. thooms as they're called so he's just a wild magic sorcerer yep well, not wild magic, uh, dragon lineage sorcerer. Dragon lineage sorcerer, um, which is practically wild magic because of all the different shit you can do. Yeah. But, um, like, even recently, recently, I, I'm glad that, like, the compendium for races opened up more. I see a lot more people playing Warforged. Mm-hmm. I see more people playing Goblin, more people playing Gnomes. Kobolds. Uh, kobolds. Kobolds are great. Um, things like Goliaths, Genasi. Uh, different elementals, Azimer, 
mm-hmm. all great races and i'm glad to see that they're starting to be more played in the public space because people are starting to realize that humans are getting boring uh fun fact about azimer specifically if you look on a spreadsheet of least played class two race combo it is azimer druid least played so if you want to go out there and make an Asmer Druid, you are truly unique. I, I, I can see that as well. because So if, if you don't know, um, races all have racial bonuses. There, there are some things that certain races are better at than other races. Um, so, so elves specifically, uh, they are light and nimble. They have bonuses to dexterity. Um, whereas a human is a jack of all trades. They, they can... Uh, they get bonus feats and can pick up extra languages. Um. I have to cut off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I lost my train of thought. You're talking about humans and they can do just about anything. Yeah. So so, so each race has their, their pluses and minuses. Like dwarves are strong and hardy, so they get strength and constitution bonuses. Yeah, and, and, and they're resistant to poison because they can drink anything. Just about. Uh, and, and some races happen to fit into certain classes better than others. But that's not to say that because you picked this race, you can't pick that class. Yeah. Or because you want to play this class, you can't be this race, or you have to be that race. And there are certain there are certain ways you can bypass loopholes, mm. uh, or beat out traditional, I guess, class stereotypes because of your race. Mm-hmm. I don't watch Critical Role, but I know that in the current season, we're in season three, just started like a month ago. Um, Matt Mercer is playing a character this time around. I don't remember what his name is, but he is a dwarf sorcerer, which is not a common combination. But here's why he did it. He did it because dwarves get heavy armor mastery. Ah, So he's a caster with an AC of 16 because he's wearing chain mail. Yep. So that's just a neat way to bypass the system. So sorcerers traditionally don't have very heavy armor and they're very easy to hit and very squishy yeah that's what we call a squishy yeah low hp low defense can very easily be bowled over by something bigger than it Mm. so so playing one with heavy armor you've just negated all of your your cons or at least you've lowered your chances for something bad to happen to you you're still a sorcerer which means that your health is going to be generally low but now you're not getting pot shots taken on you by something that shouldn't realistically be able to hit you. Yeah. Plus, all of the, the, the flavor wins that you can do with a character like that. Uh, you, you need a spellcasting focus for, for some of your spells. That can be a beer stein now. Yeah. Um, it could be the very armor you wear. Yeah. Um, if you have, like, a holy symbol or something, like, carved into it or fashioned from it. But... Uh, even with all of the stuff I've mentioned already, I'd have to say functionally, because I have to say that I'm not without bias. I've been playing for longer than any other class, class race combo at least. I've been playing Halfling. Halfling's one of functionally my favorite races. I'm a Halfling bard. I have been for out of my 10 years of playing d and I've been a Halfling bard for at least six of those years. 
It's my favorite class. It's my favorite race. But I think from a design perspective and playing the game, especially for beginners, one of my favorite races, and this may be my new favorite, is Tortle. Tortle is such a great race, especially for if you're starting out. Because Tortles, you don't have to worry about armor, because Tortles have a natural AC of 17 because of their shell. They can't wear armor because they got this big bulky shell, but their shell keeps them protected. And so, For those who don't know, Tortle is a race of turtle people. Yes, I should hope that that came through pretty clearly. It's a pun on its own name. But, um, so any character generally uh, has an armor class of 10. And to beat an armor class of 10, you have to roll to hit on a d20, that number or higher. So if your AC is 10, without any modifiers of any kind, there's a 50-50 chance of you getting hit. Now, if your AC, if your armor class is 17 by nature, you become much harder to hit. So this makes you really good for tanky characters. It's also really good for casting classes. But it's really good for two particular melee classes, the monk and the barbarian. More so the barbarian than the monk, and I'm going to explain why in a second. But as both a monk and a barbarian, you get a ability called unarmored defense, where as long as you're not wearing armor, you get extra armor class points equal to the amount of modifier bonus that you have in a certain stat. For monk, it's wisdom. For barbarian, it's constitution. Now, you can't wear armor. You have a big bulky shell, but that does not count as armor. So you are allowed to have your defense modifier come from that given stat in your class because you're not wearing armor. On top of that, because you're not wearing heavy armor, your dexterity bonus can also factor into your armor class. Now, a barbarian, Tortle, that put all of their, that put their, if you use the standard array uh, point by system, not point by, but if the standard array point system to determine your stats, if you put your 15 in constitution, that is a plus two to your armor class because you're a barbarian. Barbarians also get to use shields because shields aren't armor. So there's a plus two from your constitution modifier and a plus two from your shield on top of the 17 AC you start with. At level one, a Tortle Barbarian is nigh unhittable with an armor class of 21. So still able to be hit. However, your opponent's going to have to roll a natural 20 and have a modifier to, yes. to add on to that. Which anything that you're going up against that's worth its salt as a fighter is going to have at least, even at level one, is like a plus five to hit. But even so, they have to roll like a 16 or better mm -hmm. which again is a lower odds of um of hitting just because of the number of sides on a given die and like monk is also really good because you get the dex bonus and mm -hmm. monks you can play a strength based monk personally i like to play a charisma based monk but that's just me <laughs> and uh, and the fun thing about playing a a turtle monk all you need is a bandana and then you're a Ninja Turtle. Exactly. 
that, that, that was too easy not to make a connection yeah. there. <laughs> but um, now, uh, for anybody out there that plays D&D, I know this is kind of a really nerdy way to start a show, but try, oh, yeah. try Tortle. Try it. Just try it. Even if it's a one-off session, even if it's a character that you never plan on playing again, Tortles are fun. Also, that barbarian that has an AC of 21, at, even at level one, this is a Tortle feature. You are in combat. You can opt to hide in your shell, which increases your AC by four. So your shield wouldn't help you because it's hiding in your shell with you or you drop it. I don't know how the rules work specifically on that. But if you thought 21 was ridiculous, even though you're not doing anything, you're untouchable with an armor class of 23 at level one. And let's talk about a, a seldom used spell here that, that I feel like works fantastic. Uh, the, the grease spell. So a lot of people are saying that, oh, hey, it's, it's non-flammable grease. Why, why would I use that? I, I want to set things on fire. Well, dare I say that makes it more useful. With it being non-flammable, you, you could theoretically cast it in front of yourself, withdraw into your shell, and then have a party member kick you. And, and now you are a projectile attacking your opponent. Uh, and, and dare I say, that, that could be used to get around some, some movement restrictions as well. Yep. You have. You'd have to work with your DM. On of that. course, yeah. Because the rules. Different is, games are going to be different. Rules is written for Greece is everything in a ten foot circle uh, of the point of casting becomes rough terrain. Hmm. But it's rough terrain because you can't stand on it. It's not rough terrain like oh, there's rocks and stuff coming out of the ground. Yeah, everything is smooth. I don't think that's. I don't think that's too much to ask of your DM. But definitely, like, don't just take it. As fact that yes, I can be a turtle hockey puck if somebody gets grease. <laughs> so, so that's the other thing. Uh, as, as much as we all like rules, we all like reading. Uh, the DM is in charge of the game. Uh, whatever they say goes. Yeah. In in it's ultimately not, yes. It's not just oh hey this is the DM's game. Uh, we have to do things how the DM plays. They're there to have fun just as much as you are. Yep. You, you're you're both playing this game, writing this story, and everyone's looking to have a good time. What yeah. is it? The the DM is just the storyteller. Yeah. The DM can like how do how do I want to say this? The DM can show you a page in a book, mm -hmm. but you the players have to read it. Yes. Uh the DM can't force you to do anything unless they're a bad DM. Um <laughs> the DM cannot force you to do anything you don't want to do, but also Refusing to do things that the DM suggests you do is just a dick move. Yeah. There, there's a little give and take. But I love working with my players. Um, there was one instance, like, I like to I like to build scenes for my players, which any good DM likes to do. But I don't like giving away all the information at once. Mm -hmm. So if I told you... If I told you that... You were in a clear, like a glade, like a hilly, slightly hilly glade that becomes maybe a little bit more hilly with like a light forest interlude that becomes more dense as it goes further back. Um, if I put you in that setting, very quiet, very serene, very natural. If you are wearing 
chainmail. And you are trying to sneak. You are going to have a disadvantage on your sneak roll because your rattly, clattily chainmail is going to be making noise while you're trying to hide your stifle your movement. Mm -hmm. Now, some people would just go, oh, well, that sucks. But just go ahead with it anyway. If you asked me to explain the scene a little better, I might have given you information that, like, I don't know, maybe slightly into the forest, you can see a small waterfall, some water falling down off of a high precipice onto a smooth stone that gathers in a small pond. And off in the distance, I want to say maybe anywhere from 60 to 80 feet, you can hear wolves uh, bickering and yapping at each other over who gets the best, biggest piece of meat from a fresh hunt. Maybe those noises in tandem with each other might just cancel out the noise that your chainmail makes that wouldn't require for you to make a disadvantage check on your stealth roll. But you're going to have to ask for that information and then kindly and civilly argue with me the dm on whether or not we could incorporate that rule you can't you can't just like if i said uh try to sneak with disadvantage you could make the argument well wouldn't my sound wouldn't the sound i make like be stifled by the waterfall or by the wolves or something because that's information you have now and, and that's where your passive perception comes in as well the the, the more you can see about a particular setting the more information you have the the more you have to go and, and really, that's a core of what D&D is, is, is... Paying attention. Yes, acquiring information about your surroundings and, and just being aware of what's going on. I, I know a lot of people that like to power game, and they think that every, every session of D&D is give me like either a large horde of monsters to fight or give me mm -hmm. some really big monster to fight. And that's a way to play. But I would argue almost that if that's what you want to do every session, play Warhammer. Warhammer is all about like war and like strategizing, strategizing combat, because that's what the game is predicated around. It's all entirely based on how to lead an army, how to like set up a trap, how to spring an ambush, uh, how to relay battlefield information. D&D is just high fantasy role-playing. I've gone many sessions in a row with players before where there wasn't a combat, and that was entirely by the players choosing. And that's not to say that combat in D&D is bad. It's just that that's not the only way to play the game. Yes. Everybody remembers I attack the darkness. Yes. But I don't know if you just asked a few questions and maybe wrote some notes down. You might not have to attack the darkness. I would like to take the darkness out to dinner. Roll charisma. <laughs> well, so that's going to fail. <laughs> well, you rolled a two, <laughs> and you have a modifier of negative eight. <laughs> uh, so the darkness attacks me. <laughs> she slaps you across the face. How dare you? Well, I needed some bardic inspiration there. <laughs> Speaking of bardic inspiration, have you ever, have you ever been playing in a group and you had that that cool thing in the back of your brain that you're like, 
oh, I could do this, which would let me do this, so I could pull off this really epic combo to, I don't know, beat this monster, like convince this king that we're related mm-hmm. or something. Just some grand epic move that would make you like the MVP of the session. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to do this really cool thing, but to do that, you would need like the go-ahead from the rest of the table. And all of them also want to do their super cool epic thing. Yeah, because being a, a turn-based game, everyone has their their ability to do things. That's what initiative is in combat. Um, your, your initiative role is when you get to act during a turn. But uh, what is it? Because everybody wants to do their really cool thing, you don't and they don't get to do their cool thing because mm-hmm. you're like, I have a cool thing I want to do. And they're like, no. It's well. It's more so. I have a cool thing I want to do. Can you guys help me? And they're like, No, I want to do my cool thing. Yep. So because they said no, you're like, well, I don't want to help you do your cool thing either. Yep. So then nobody gets to do their cool thing, um, except the rogue who does it anyway. Yes. Uh, there's a certain. I don't want to say toxicity because it has nothing to do with tabletop RPGs, but there's a certain toxicity in the competitiveness of games as a whole now even when they're not supposed to be competitive yes like the D is a game very much about camaraderie it's about befriending everyone you're playing with even the dungeon master who is not a bad guy he just directs you in which way the story is moving um but it's a it's a, a game for people nerds used to hide in their basements and play this for hours on end because it was the only thing that they shared in common that they wanted to do and they would be socially shunned for doing so, but it was how they made friends. So, fun fact about uh, hiding away in basements there. Um, when Gary Gygax was developing D&D, b- before it was even fully released and, and the, the major hit that it was now, um, he was very secretive about things to the point where his wife thought he was cheating on her until she went to meet him in a basement setting and found him playing what would eventually become D&D. Yep. Did you know that there was technically a name for it before it was D&D? It was based off of a module of a game similar that was called Chainmail, Hmm. uh, which I think had like two versions and then D&D 1. D&D Basic came out, and then there was an addendum to the rules, and then we got Advanced, mm-hmm. which some people refer to as Second Edition, but it's D&D Advanced 1, and then D&D Advanced Second Edition is what me and a bunch of people will refer to as Second Edition. A lot of people got started on Second. I, I think that's where I got started as well. Yeah. Um, the majority of my play was... Uh, 3.5 and, and now 5e yeah i remember 3.5 came out and then pathfinder came from that uh, i remember playing 3.5 a little bit i have never played pathfinder i haven't played pathfinder either but i played a little maybe like one or two maybe three games of 3.5 and we were like no this we like second edition better because yes. i'd already been playing for like two years at that point so i knew the rules better there there is a a massive fundamental shift between 2.0 and 3.5 yeah in second edition dwarf and elf were classes <laughs> and and just the the entire combat math switches as well yeah. you, you you used to use theco and 
now you have armor class. Part of me misses Thacko. Yeah. Um, rogues had a, a level one rogue had a hit die of four. <laughs> so very squishy. Yeah. So unless you put into your unless you put into your constitution, you started the game with a health pool of three. Yep. Which means a goblin could kill one and a half of you on their first turn, <laughs> which meant you were dead and you would have to roll a new character. Mm-hmm. Did you know that in earlier builds of D&D, earlier editions, especially second, um, different classes required different amounts of experience to level up? I, I remember that, yeah. I think as a, as a human rogue, to get from level one to level two, you had to get like 1,200 experience. I think there were also bonuses based on your race. Something like that. But an elf, to get an elf to level, to to get from an elf from level one to level two, you had to be, you had to get like 4,000 experience. Well, it's just ridiculous. From a gameplay standpoint, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. From, from a story standpoint, I can kind of see it. Because so, elves are better than you in every way. Well... Yes. And they're going to live a lot longer to obtain that experience. That's, that's more of where I'm getting at, yeah. Um, In-universe, in elves live hundreds of years, if not thousands, and, and age very slowly. So so requiring more experience to go up a level kind of makes sense. Yeah. Think your relationship to your dog. All right, your that's, that's your dog. Your relationship to your dog is... Our is an elves relationship to us. Yeah. Our ancestors have come and gone, and then so will we and our offspring, all within that elf's lifetime. And and the elf would also like to keep you as a pet. Yes. It's just what they do. <laughs> They're better than you, and they know that. Mm-hmm. And they flaunt it because of it. <laughs> a minute ago, I was talking about um, the toxicity of of just competition mm-hmm. not not that that's bad but just like leeching into places where it doesn't need to be yeah and i wanted to unpack that a little bit because i think it's becoming an issue i don't think i know i know it's becoming an issue yeah um because that stuff like that never used to happen like it if a if a player at the table had this cool thing that they could do when I started playing, it was like, oh, you can do this cool thing. Go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. And then we would all rejoice when it worked. And we would all, like, grit our teeth when it didn't. And now everyone has to be that cool person exactly. on the table. Exactly. So that they can post about it on their Instagram. Yeah. Or make a TikTok about this cool thing I did. But, like, there's nothing wrong with helping other people be cool. Yeah. There's also nothing wrong with being mediocre. Dare I say, mediocrity is almost better than being somebody important because for the most part when you're playing games like this your character is just that your character you you, you're not descendant from from a noble lineage you're not someone important to the story you're just some dude off the street that's also something interesting that i think is interesting you should bring that up there are lineages in D&D now. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, your character, it's like, come up with a little backstory for your character. Oh, uh, I'm a I'm a wizard of a high-born noble family of a long line of wizards. 
In second edition, you were a farmer. Yep. You had your dad's farm and you like you started with like you didn't have a class. You had to develop into your class. You were an angry farmer with a club that maybe like chased a monster into a cave and where they came across like a a long deceased adventurer that had a, a helmet and a sword mm-hmm. and you picked up the sword because it w- seemed more dangerous than your club and you put the helmet on your head because head protection and then you found the thing you chased into the cave and killed it and you came out this thing had not only been affecting you and your family but farmers for towns over now you're a local hero because of something you did purely out of selfish need mm-hmm. and, and that's not to say that you can't have a noble lineage like that. It's, it's just that trying to shoehorn that into the story is, is where things get muddy. It's more fun to become cool than to be born cool. Yeah. Because then you have, because if you're born cool, you have something you feel like you need to live up to. Yeah. Which is where that toxic, I have to be the cool one comes from. And, and you slip into oh, well, I, I have to do this to, to keep my reputation up. I am such a fantastic person in this universe. I have to do all these things. You don't have to do anything. No. If you want to just kick back and, and get drunk at the tavern, do that. That is totally a thing you can do. Um, and that, that way of thinking that I am such an amazing presence in this world, yeah. that mentality will travel outside the game into your waking world. And it'll help you lose sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Because now you're like, man, my D&D character's so cool, but I'm not cool. So then you try to find ways to make yourself cool, which you confuse with making yourself important. And then you end up, like, unfriending a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Because, like, your need, your need to feel cool or important supersedes the feelings of others. And, and that's... So this is a bit of a touchy subject, but... I believe that's not entirely wrong. Like, you can have the game bleed into real life and not have it negatively affect you or or people around you. Um, There are people who play this game to essentially be what they can't be. To escape. Yeah, yeah. And, and, And then just playing that role and and just letting things flow naturally you can take those experiences take that way of thinking in in the game and apply that to your own real life um but let's say that um you're a pretty meek person you you don't you don't really say anything you don't really stand up for yourself in public but in the game you're you're a tank. You, you play something, you know, heavy, durable. You have a presence in this game world. Um, you have protected the innocent farmland just just because you decided to, to stand up and actually do something about a problem. You can take those experiences and apply them to your real life and, and say, hey, I'm not content with, with just standing by and, and watching things happen. I want to stand up and do more for my community. And that, that is a perfectly valid thing to do. And, and you, can, you can improve your own life 
just by playing a game like this and, and, and taking that way of thinking and those experiences and applying them outside the game. Yeah. Now, with that, of course, if you're toxic in the game and try to apply that to real life, you're, you're just going to reinforce that toxicity and, and just make things worse. Yeah. That's more or less what I was trying to yeah. harp on. Yeah. Obviously, if you can make a positive outcome from a tabletop board game, if you can apply that to real life, absolutely. Because that's like growing yes. from an experience. But I guess it's the indulging in your character too much. Yes. To the, to the point that the tiny things that don't mean anything suddenly mean too much to you. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I was getting at. And you... you cut people out of your life because oh hey they won't let me they do don't respect cool my wizard yeah exactly the squishy wizard who attacks the darkness I attack the darkness I love the spell shillelagh <laughs> it makes druids a viable melee class at least in, at early levels you, you turn a stick into a club it deals turn, bonus damage you turn a stick into a d8 weapon <laughs> that attacks with your wisdom modifier. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just think that's neat. There's a lot of neat stuff about D&D. You know what else is cool? Not tabletop RPG video games. Yes. Before we started recording this, Scott and I sat down and watched like a bunch of stuff. We didn't even watch that video about Zelda. Yeah, no, we, we just kind of talked over it. <laughs> but like, can we all just agree that Nintendo, while a part of our childhood... Uh, has made like some really amazing stories and the the characters of like Mario mm -hmm. the Legend of Zelda franchise with Link and the titular Princess Zelda Donkey Kong Samus Aran from the Metroid franchise the entire Pokemon universe the entire Pokemon universe we were watching a Zelda video right before we started recording and we had I had asked the question and I'm curious to know what other people's take on this is so I'm going to start ranting about this all over again <laughs> it's all coming back the use of the boomerang in Zelda games I get it it was the very first not sword that you get in a dungeon if you played Zelda 1 you, you start in the middle of the map go into the cave old man gives you swords you go up you go left you go up you go right twice you go up twice you go left first dungeon i mean there's a faster way to get there but yeah i think that's the fast way you can just go up right up up left isn't that what i said no you went left oh you're talking about from start okay yeah. no um well i always like to like do the roundabout way so that you can get the uh, you can get like pick, start picking up as much money as possible so that you can buy that sweet shield and candle later. But I guess there's a there's so on the way to, to level one. Let's <laughs> not let's not digress too much. On the way to level one, so you start the game, you get the sword, you have a sword and a shield. That's what you got: sword, shield, three hearts. Let's go to level one so that we can get ourselves another heart container, piece of the triforce of wisdom and courage, wisdom. Is it wisdom? There are two Triforces in Zelda 1. Ganon has the Triforce of Power, and Zelda, in an effort to stop him from having both pieces, broke the Triforce of Wisdom into eight different... Yeah, eight different right. pieces. Yeah, that, 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 okay. So, 
Or was it nine pieces? It was, it was eight, eight pieces. Um, so you're in level one. You have three hearts, a sword, and a shield. You go up a couple rooms. There's some. There's a room with Darius, and you get a boomerang as a reward for defeating them. The boomerang's really cool because assuming that you've been taking damage, you don't have sword beams anymore. So it allows you to attack at a distance. After having taken damage, it doesn't do damage, but it stuns enemies so you can get in close and stab them with your sword. And it allows you to pick up items that deceased enemies have dropped. Now, that's all well and good. And in the case of Zelda 1, the boomerang is a great item. It does its job very well especially the magic boomerang you get in level two you can throw it clear to the other end of the screen so you have full control of you can hit anything on the on any given screen with your boomerang assuming you have the magic one it's also much faster it's much faster you can freeze enemies in place which makes them easier to dispatch and if something's out of your reach if you hit something across the map with a sword beam or something there's like a row of trees in your way you can throw your boomerang at it and pick up that five rupee or that heart that you need or whatever. Uh, and then that's, that's, that's great. And uh, link to the past and a link to the past comes out. Cause there's no boomerang in Zelda two link to the past comes out. Did links awakening come out before that? Uh, no, I believe uh, Zelda two came out before links awakening. No, I, I could be wrong. Did, Link's Awakening come out before Link to the Past? I believe so, yes. Even so. Uh, well, then let's talk about that really quick. Link's Awakening. You don't get the boomerang until the very end of the game. It's super useful. It deals a lot of damage. It can do all the things the other one can't on top of dealing a whole lot of damage, but you don't get it until, like... It is also a completely optional item in that Yes, game. it's completely optional, and you can't get it until the late end game anyway. Yeah. Um, then A Link to the Past comes out, you play it, you get the boomerang in the first dungeon when you're trying to escort Princess Zelda out of the Hyrule Castle dungeon, and you get the tiny boomerang, which can be upgraded into the magic boomerang, still stuns enemies on contact, but doesn't damage them, still picks up enemy or picks up items that enemies have dropped. But now there's new stuff. Uh, in addition to the bow and arrow, which was in Zelda 1, which could damage enemies but couldn't pick up items. Uh, there is a bow and arrow in A Link to the Past. Same, second verse, same as the first. Put a bow in Zelda 1, put a bow in Link to the Past. That's great. But now things start to get a little weird because the second dungeon, technically I guess you could call it the second dungeon, of the Dark World, the Swamp Palace, has a special item in it called the Hookshot, which is the best qualities of both the boomerang and the bow and arrow uh you don't need ammunition like the bow it can deal damage to certain enemies it can still uh stun enemies that it can't damage it can still uh pick up items that enemies drop and it can zip you around the map as long as you hookshot something that it can attach to like you don't need the boomerang anymore as soon as you get the hookshot you don't use the boomerang anymore you don't need it Sure, there's an argument where, well, what if I want to throw my, grab something that's at a diagonal, because you can't shoot the hookshot at a diagonal. Then, yeah, but that's a very situational place to find yourself in. Uh, Ocarina of Time, I was complaining about this to Scott, like, this is the thing I harp on the most. You go to Jabu Jabu's Belly, which is the third dungeon in the, in the childhood section of the game to get the third uh, spiritual stone of water from the... 
Zora so you can go back to Hyrule Castle Town and unlock the door or to continue with the story plot so you can get the Ocarina of Time to get the Master Sword and then adulthood. Yay. But the very first dungeon in the game, the Deku Tree, you get the slingshot, which is which allows you to shoot from a distance. It allows you to aim freely and doesn't suck. Uh, and it can and it can damage enemies. You get it in the first dungeon. It's a ranged attack. It's the same as the bow. It's great. Who the hell is calling me? <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> I want to be part of my show. <laughs> You have the slingshot. It does the. It, you can shoot it. It de- deals damage. You can shoot from a distance. You can free aim, which doesn't suck. And then you know you get bombs in Dodongo's cavern. You get the boomerang in Jabu Jabu's belly. You get it in the second half of the dungeon. It's used to hit one switch, which has a wall in front of it. So it's only serving its purpose as an arcing distance item for one puzzle. And then you fight a boss with it, and then. You immediately can't use it anymore because you go to the Temple of Time, become an adult, and then Sheik prevents you from putting the sword back, so you can't go back to being a kid at first. So now you're stuck as an adult, unable to use your shiny new boomerang you've used twice, and then you have to go, what? You have to get to the Forest Temple, but to do that, you have to go to Dompe's grave and race him so you can get, what? The hookshot, which is better than the boomerang in every conceivable way. I'm in the camp that the boomerang is always useful. I mean, it has a place <laughs> and it can be useful, but I don't want to waste a pocket on something that one of my other tools does better. Yeah, It's but like a like... Twilight Princess. You get the spinner, which is great in the Arbiter's Grounds, but you don't use it outside of there. That's true for a lot of Zelda items, though. They're that's useful gr- within the dungeon. For, that's and true then... for a lot of Twilight Princess items. Yeah, I suppose. You get the the ball and chain in the, the snow whatever area and use mm-hmm. it for that dungeon. You get the Dominion Rod in the Temple of Time, and then it breaks... And then you have to get it fixed mm-hmm. with a stupid quest so that you can get to the Temple of the Sky where you get the best item in the game, the double claw shot, that hook shot that I said was so awesome a minute ago. Now you have two of them. So instead of shooting clumsily to one claw shot target and landing before aiming to another one, you don't have to land on the ground before clumsily and hopelessly aiming at another claw shot target. Thanks, game. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like there are a lot of Zelda items that use for that specific dungeon, and then, yeah, you could use them somewhere else. They, they might be used to get a collectible or something, but for the majority, you're not gonna... Like, how often do you use the Megaton Hammer from Wind Waker? You hit a switch, that's it. You're done. If you don't get the Begoron Sword in um the item trade quest in Ocarina. There's a large possibility... Uh, actually, you might end up having to use the Megaton Hammer on the final boss. Um, because Ganon wakes up after his whole castle cro- falls on him. Well, and then... And again, that that's for, for Ocarina of Time. I, I mean the, the Megaton in the in Wind Waker. Different, oh, the Skull Hammer. Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a couple uh, islands with switches... Yeah, but, like, you're not using it for... No, it's not a regularly used yeah. item. 
Whereas something like the sword, you're going to be using as soon as you get it until the game is over. Yep. And you can't wait for a new one. Yeah. That's what I think makes... Um, that's something that always seems to be done right in Zelda games, is mm -hmm. the sword. With the exception of Breath of the Wild. Which is a game that I have nothing but praise for, with the exception of the Master Sword. I disagree. I think the Master Sword is done very well in Breath of the Wild. Okay. I, I like the... Oh hey, you need you need to be strong enough in in the fortitude of of your own self to even wield this master sword. You you need to have what is I'm it? not arguing that thirteen hearts. The thirteen to, heart requirement yeah. to pick it up. I'm on yeah. board with that. I think it's twelve, something like that. Or you know what? It takes twelve hearts of damage. Yeah, so you're so you, you drop need down thirteen. To a yeah. Um, and and I like the the upgrades. I, I like being able to upgrade the Master Sword in Breath of the Wild to deal more damage if you go through the Trials of the Sword, which I've done one of. I, I've not done the other two because they get progressively more difficult. And I like that because there are three trials to go through and each of the trials embodies a different part of the Triforce. Um, I, I want to say level one is the Triforce of Courage. You, you don't know what you're getting yourself into, but you run headfirst into it anyway, and, and showing your courage there empowers the Master Sword even more. Whereas the later stages embody the Triforce of Wisdom and the Triforce of Power. Uh, I, I want to say stage two is Wisdom, where it's less brute strength and more how can I use the tools available to me to get through this? Because while you're going through the Trials of the Sword, the rest of your gear is gone. Um, you only have what they allow you to, to use within the Trials and whatever you can find along the way in the Trials. So you, you have to manage your resources accordingly. Whereas stage three, the Triforce of Power, things hit like a truck and you have nothing to defend yourself with. So you have to overcome this overwhelming force against you and come out on top to, to really get your sword as strong as possible. And I think that's done very elegantly in a way that isn't really seen in other Zelda games. Yes, you can upgrade your sword even in Link's Awake, or not Link's Awakening, uh, Link to the Past, getting the Master Sword is not the end-all be-all. You, you can have it tempered and then have the fairy turn, turn it gold. And those are upgrades to your sword, but they don't feel as, as special or, or as in-depth as the Trials of the Sword in Breath of the Wild. So I'm on board, but... I think my argument was not noticed by you because I didn't have a chance to set it up. Was it just the durability thing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that Breath of the Wild... Everything you said about upgrading the strength of the sword is great. 
I love the strength requirement to even pull it from the pedestal. I love the story that goes in tandem with Link being damaged and the sword being damaged mm-hmm. uh, to the point that they have to be repaired magically. Mm-hmm. I'm, I love the Trials of the Sword. I am totally on board with that, all of it. But in a game where every weapon you get already breaks way too fast, I think that even if it was just a tiny bit weaker, maybe if we tweaked it from 30 down to 20 strength and then upgrade it to 40 as opposed to 60 strength when mm-hmm. the trials of the sword are done or when a, you know, like a guardian is nearby or some thing related to Ganon. If you made the sword a little bit weaker, but unbreakable or even let's go nuclear 10 strength. There are plenty of weapons in the game stronger than it. Mm-hmm. Like 10, 12, 15 strength, somewhere about there. And then just double it when there's a Malice, Ganon, and Karst, and like mm-hmm. Ganon something around. If you made it 15 and then doubles to 30, that's nothing to thumb your nose at, but the 15 for regular use, it keeps you from having to just waste your really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Now I know that there's the argument that can be made. Well, if you don't, you if your stuff doesn't break when new stuff comes along, how are you going to pick it up? Right. I'm at in my personal save. I haven't even beaten the game yet because I'm trying to do everything. I have all the best weapons, mm-hmm. all the best weapons, but I just use my master sword until it breaks, mm-hmm. and then I just avoid combat until it comes back. <laughs> So I'm not against the Master Sword being what it is or powering up how it is, but in a game where everything breaks way too fast already, I think one thing should be unbreakable. Even if it has to suffer a usability, even if it has to to miss out on usability to keep that status of unbreakable. On the one hand, I agree. I, I can see where you're coming from. On the other, I kind of like how it's done. Um, the, the the Master Sword is is built up in universe to be the the end all be all, the the sword that's the the it's bane of evil, the blade of evil's bane. Yeah. It's not just it's not just a plot MacGuffin. It is a sword that will make you stronger. Yeah, and 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 like. Yes, the enemies in Breath of the Wild are, are evil. The, the goblins and, and the, the moblins aren't exactly best of friends to Link or anything. Unless but, you get the hat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but really, the, the true power of the Master Sword is is sealing away evil and, and, being, and, and using it to fight off Ganon's malice. And I feel like the... the I don't want to say you're wasting it, but like using it to fight something that isn't Ganon's malice or, or, or isn't in isn't in Hyrule Castle, you're not using the sword to its fullest potential. And and yes, they're tools for you to use, but like you can use a screwdriver or you can use a power drill. And sometimes you don't always need the power drill. Sometimes just a screwdriver is enough. I, I, this is a very weird point to debate because I think both arguments are right. 
There's no, there is no truly right answer to this. Yeah, it, it because, comes down to personal because preference. Because what you, because what you pointed out about how, yes, you can use the power drill, and you don't have to use the power drill where a screwdriver would be perfectly acceptable. Yeah. Sure, you don't have to use the the master sword to fight small enemies, mm-hmm. but I did all this work for this thing. I'm going to use it. And and. To that end, yes, I agree. But if we look in universe, Link's not at full strength. The sword isn't at full strength. It's been sitting in this pedestal, recharging for a hundred years, and and even then, it's not really at full power. And and again, the power of the Master Sword is more than just oh, hey, it's a sharp stick. It has, you know, magic, evil sealing properties built into the blade, and and you know, using that to cut grass, it seems like a waste. I'm not using it to cut grass. <laughs> I'm using the blade beams I have at full health it, to cut uh-huh, the grass. All right. <laughs> what is it? There's a I. The the literal terms of the Master Sword, I feel in most Zelda games, are done very well. Yeah. Even in Zelda games where there isn't a Master Sword. Uh, Zelda 1 is a great example. It's the magical sword, but you could call it the Master Sword for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes. You have to find it. Mm-hmm. And it's not in a place you would think to look. Because you already had there's the wooden sword that you get from the old man on the first screen then atop a waterfall mm-hmm. where you would expect the magical end all beat all weapon to be is the white sword mm-hmm. which requires four five hearts to be able to get and to know where it is now in arthurian legend let's say like something like let's say something old english if there was a, a sword that could that was stronger than any sword you'd been given that was at the top of a waterfall, that's the thing. That's Mm -hmm. what you want. That's the magic item. But the game, unless you let the opening credits roll where it tells you that they're what the cast of weapons is, uh, you wouldn't know that there's another sword Mm -hmm. because when you take your first tour through the graveyard, you're like, this place is spooky. I want to get out of here. You have to push every grave to find the one that has the magic sword in it and then realize, oh my god, there's another sword. I believe that's hinted at somewhere in the game, but you have to really be paying yes, attention you, for it. And half of those cryptic messages aren't even right. Well, uh, Dodongo really does dislike smoke. Yeah. Shoot at the <laughs> eyes of Goma. It's I. It's <laughs> I mean... Some of it comes down to translation I miss errors. when Goma was a crab. Goma used to be a crab. I miss crab Goma. <laughs> What's the spider Goma garbage we've uh, been dealing with since 1980? You you haven't Nair. played the Oracle games. Play the Oracle games. Goma's a crab. <laughs> no, what are some other good examples of the Master Sword? I like... Wind Waker's really good about it. Um... Wind Waker, you do the first three dungeons, mm-hmm. same as Ocarina, you get the Master Sword, but it's not full power. Right. Because it, it's this thing that that I, I can also argue that this is where, like, the Master Sword starts to become a problem, because Nintendo has gotten so wrapped up on, oh, the Master Sword, ever since A Link to the Past, the Master Sword can be made better. 
Because mm-hmm. you get the Master Sword, you go back and you fight Aghanim, and he's like, I'm going to take you to the Dark World. And then you come across these smiths that are like, we can make your sword better. Excuse me? I found this sword in, in a forest. <laughs> a, a pedestal with deer and squirrels and birds surrounding it. With that a, I couldn't pull out unless I had three magic exactly, that had that had a, a script on a dais I couldn't read without a certain book. And you're telling me you can make it better? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's red now. Yeah. yeah. And then it can get better. Like, I, I, it would almost be easier to just make it three upgrades. Kind of like, you know, the shield mm-hmm. and the armor. <laughs> And just skip the smiths entirely. Although I do like that there are four sword upgrades because more stuff to do make brain happy. Yeah. Uh, just send it from level two straight to level four by... You can't get to the greatest fairy in the Dark World Pyramid until you beat dungeons five and six because that's when you're given the opportunity to pick up the bomb from... Yeah, whatever his name's is place. I don't think he has one. I don't think he does. But so just give it like Nyx the third, the the red sword. We don't need it. We you can keep the the red lightsaber or Cheeto sword, whatever people call it. Just go straight to the butter sword. That would be fine. And and both of those sword upgrades are optional. Yep. The the only forced sword upgrade is is going from the wooden sword to the master sword. I think it's the fighter sword. It's not a wooden sword. Either with basic sword to yes. master sword. Um, what is it? Uh, there is, I, I think one of, you have to, I think you have to get one of them. Uh, because I remember seeing something about it in speedruns where Ganon acts, final boss Ganon acts differently dependent on the sword that you have. I think you can only actually damage him hmm. with... Because if you have the gold sword, uh, you can just swing and hit yeah. him. But if you have the tempered sword, and this might also apply to the master sword, so you might not need to upgrade at all. You can only hit him with spin attacks. I I can see it. Yeah, I always right. get the gold sword, yeah, so I don't, know, I don't know how valid this is. <laughs> but I remember, because it's like, I trust, like, um, like, Andy... And all the guys in the speed in the link to the past speedrunning community mm. that talk about this kind of stuff, and I've seen people beat the game with the red sword. I know it can be done, mm. but I remember there's a certain way to do it. You can't just go hit, 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 and then I, he dies. I believe it. There, there are a lot of things about these games that people just don't don't think about. Uh, so, so specifically with that Ganon fight. Um, there's a part where he'll he'll uh, spin a bunch of fireballs around and they turn into bats and come fly at you. Such a cool attack. Did you know that you can actually determine which bats fly at you when? Yep. So the uh, the is it the first Dark World dungeon. I want to say it's either the third dungeon in the Light World or the first dungeon in the Dark World where you're fighting the Night statues. Um, the dungeon- uh, that's the that's the first okay, Light World so- dungeon. So, so Palace of Darkness. Yep. When you get the bow, um, the order in which you kill those knights in in the first dungeon in the game is the order that those bats will fly at you. Which, who would think that? But apparently, if if you really want to set it up for for late game, you can 
kill these knights in a specific order to get a good, oh, hey, he's going to throw this bat at me, then he's going to throw that bat at me, so I know exactly how to dodge. I did not know that's what you were going to say. Yeah, yeah, no. I did so, not know that there was, like, this apparent thing. No, it, it tracks which knight you kill, and each knight is a bat. You fight them again in Ganon's tower. Yes. Does it reset? I am not sure. Um, and I'm also not sure which of those night fights is actually the, the, the oh, hey, this is how the bats are going to fly. But one of them, at least, is, oh, hey, this knight died, so this bat's going to fly at you huh. now. That's pretty neat. I never knew that. Assuming you weren't lied to, that's pretty cool. So it's actually been used to to uh, catch speedrun cheaters. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, these things that people don't think that, oh, hey, th this doesn't matter. But then, oh, wait, so so you just caught me cheating in the speedrun and you can prove it. Uh, crap. My name's Dream. <laughs> <laughs> I don't cheat. <laughs> What are some other good Zeldas with, um... Let's talk about interesting Zelda bosses. I actually really love... What's your favorite Zelda boss? Oh, that's... That's a tough one. While you're thinking, I'll give you mine. I uh, really like Minish Cap. So I, I, I kind of want to... Oh, no, there's two of them. Right, what, what, what's while, yours? while you're debating, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really like, I think this one's kind of a fan favorite. My favorite Zelda boss fight of all time, uh, excluding final bosses. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a fair gimme for categorizing, is fighting Goat in Majora's Mask. That's the where you're... The Snowhead Temple. So you're, you're the Goron Mask and yep. you have to roll around. And you around. have yeah, to yeah, race, yeah. Him, in the, race yeah. him in the racetrack. Not a bad I, one. There, it's it's a gimmicky boss fight, but I like the way it handles. It mm -hmm. completely plays to the strength of the transformation mask. Versus, I think it also handles the transformation masks to fight a boss the best in the game. Because mm -hmm. you can fight Odalwa in the in the swamp temple. You can fight him as just Young Link. You can fight Yorg in the Great Bay Temple. As just Young Link, you can just fire arrows at him. Mm -hmm. That's totally a thing you can do. It's not as effective as jumping in there with the Zora mask, but I didn't even realize until a couple years ago that fighting Odalwa with the Deku mask would even be a good idea. It's a thing you can do, but you don't have to. But you are entirely incentivized <laughs> to chase this MF in a circle as a Goron picking up the, the yep. jars of magic. It's just such a well-designed boss fight. It gets harder as time goes on. He starts like kicking up rocks. Stalagmites fall, or mm -hmm. yeah, stalagmites fall, or tights. Stalagmites fall from the ceiling. He shits bombs at you. And, and meanwhile, you're just this spinning disc of death. Yep. Chasing up on. And the great fairy upgrade in the dungeon. If you get all of them before beating the boss, you can leave. Mm -hmm. Get the double magic meter and come back. Mm -hmm. It makes the boss fight easier. It's just ah, I love Majora's Mask. <laughs> Favorite Zelda game. I I really like Minish Cap, and I like the gimmicks between. Um, shrinking down to minish size and also splitting into the different links. Um, I don't... 
of course the the body fight at the end has both of those together yeah but i think fights that exemplify that a little better um i I forget the names of the bosses but there's a an idol that you fight in the wind temple and the the whole gimmick behind the boss is hey you have to shoot him with an arrow so his hands drop down yep and then you shrink down into minish go inside the hands and then destroy them from within yeah um and and i think that's that's a good um use of the mechanic and you do the same thing later with vadi yeah I like that that's a take on, like, a new way to look at, like, the Bongo Bongo fight. Yeah, yeah. Um, Later on, also in the second Wind Temple, because, of course, there's two of them. Yep. um, You're you're fighting these uh, giant flying manta ray things. Yeah. And they all have uh, split pads on their back. Um, They will occasionally open their multiple eyes on the backs of their bodies but they're all in different locations so you have to use the split pads to position yourself correctly to hit all of these eyes at the same time yep. um, and and I, I think that's that's a good use of the yeah, split I mechanic think, I think a, a good mix of puzzle and combat yes. is what makes a boss fight yes. like good because um, we, we've all done the, the tennis with Ganondorf. And, and, Dead Man's Volley. I'm getting yeah. tired of it. <laughs> Although it, I suppose it's fun finding just what else you can use. Yes. Like, like, you, you don't have to use it. You can use a bottle or I a love net that, if you I love to. that all of the games have been bottle accessible to play yep. Dead Man's Volley. Yep. <laughs> I like... Um, you haven't played Twilight Princess yet. Yes, I have. Oh, you did? Yes. When? couple of years ago because you said you didn't play it no i said oh I you play said you Skyward didn't play skyward sword. sword yeah that's right which i have since also now played. so and because you played it i'm like there's a zelda game he hasn't played and i yeah. forgot it was skyward sword no um i like that like the ganon fight the bo- final boss fights with ganon mm-hmm. are like they're so varied mm-hmm. like you do the dead man like of course there's a dead man's volley but you don't do it with ganon you right. do it with puppet zelda yep which is cool so you're incorporating zelda into the narrative which makes it more fun um so that's his link just standing and you have to play the range game and everybody knows how to play dead man's volley we've been playing it since a link to the past and it also gives a story reason why you can't just run up and use your sword yes. because hey that's zelda you can't exactly you, you can't do that um and then there's the beast fight mm-hmm. uh, where you have to transform into Wolf Link. So he's mm-hmm. being used even in the finale. Um, and then you have to do the chase mm-hmm. from horseback, uh, which is very underutilized for a game that focused so much on having this big, expansive world that you can traverse from horseback and go anywhere and do anything and fight mm-hmm. from your horse. I think that the lack of horseback combat was a bit disappointing when Twilight Princess came out. But then there's the... I wasn't a huge fan of of horseback. I mean, maybe because I was playing the the GameCube version and not the Wii version, but Mm -hmm. using a bow on on Epona just... That's... I eh. And, yeah, well, that's kind of a weird argument to make because 
Twilight Princess was designed for the GameCube. Yes, it was. It's entirely designed, but I can understand how doing that on Wii is much easier hmm. because the Wii remote is a much better pointer than anything else. Yes, yes. And you don't have to worry about button inputs trying to navigate a horse and swinging yep. wildly on horseback. You can just fiddle the controller around. Uh, so, interesting note about being developed for the GameCube and, and also releasing on the Wii. I had a pre-order ticket from Best Buy for when that game was going to come out on GameCube, and I never cashed it in. <laughs> uh, so, the game is actually completely mirrored. Yep. And and this is, for, for the silliest reason, but it makes so much so sense. So much sense. A majority of people... Are right-handed. Like ninety percent of the world is right-handed, and, and Link has always been left-handed because it makes for better promotional material. Yes, it's easier to show him in art holding a shield and sword if he's left-handed. And in the GameCube version, he's left-handed. But for the Wii version, because it would be weird to swing with your non-dominant hand, this pointer that you know caused a couple of TVs to malfunction let's say yeah <laughs> um very suddenly <laughs> the entire game was mirrored and and, and that... i think so was it the entire game was mirrored or was it the the world and his sprite not sprite but model i i believe the entire if you have a guide for the gamecube version whenever it says left go right and and you have a guide for the Wii version because I know that the I know that the map and location of everything was mirrored because mm -hmm. obviously that's how the world works. I don't know if the models were mirrored. Links. Oh, would I, ha I see what you're saying. Links now. Yeah, would okay. have had to been. Yeah. Links would have had to been for the yeah. sake of how his control works. But I think all the other characters, if they weren't perfectly symmetrical, they could have just been left alone and ported. Yeah, yeah. That that that's a fair point. I mean. You don't really interact with NPCs to, to that yeah. point anyway, so it doesn't really matter. If all of us grew up thinking that, like, Midna looked a specific way to be told <laughs> we were wrong, and it turns out, oh, no, she looks different in two different games. So. You know what? That's that's fair, and, and we're going to have to do some research later. Yeah, somebody, somebody look into that. Beat us to the punch. Um, such a great franchise. Mm -hmm. Zelda taught me how to read. Yeah. Like... Okay, maybe not taught me, but like it made you want to reinforced. Read. Well, I didn't want to read, but it reinforced my speaking ability through reading. Because when Ocarina of Time came out, I was a little kid, mm -hmm. and uh, I remember because I was not old enough to like really control and handle the console very well. My dad would play. One of the very few positive memories I have about my dad, and he wouldn't advance the text box until I had read each one to the best of my ability. Mm -hmm. And that's how both my brother and I learned how to read. My and, mom used to do the same thing with, like, Super Nintendo games. And and that's an interesting point. These games are very accessible. Um, you can play the game and beat the game without reading anything. Nope. It, it's just that reading gives you more Context. depth of story. Yeah. It gives you a, a, a point of observation for what you're doing. It, it, it helps put the player in the game world. Yes. Immersion. Yes. And and yeah, you'll you'll get that out of a Pokemon, you'll get that out of a, a Mario, but I, I feel like Zelda does that very well. Yeah. Now speaking of all the things it does well, let's do a one eighty. What is your least favorite Zelda? And mm. why? 
this one requires some thought from me too so i i think the the easy answer here is adventure of link however i've not actually played it so i'm, I'm going to discount it entirely so while you're thinking because i have some input on adventure of link i like it but it's not a good way to follow up how well Zelda 1 was. Yeah, that, that, that's a fair assessment, like, I think. Mario 1 and Mario 2 are vastly different. Zelda 1 and Zelda 2 are vastly different. And it didn't need to be. I can understand that like Nintendo was trying to branch out in what, what medium could this world thrive in these characters. And mm -hmm. they tried something that wasn't as, like wasn't as easily accessible as the first game. Mm -hmm. uh, it required you to do... It was asking more of you with a little less payoff. And, and more esoteric puzzles. Yes. Um, something I never understood. In Zelda 2, a lot of people's big complaints with the dungeons is that it's easy to get lost. How? You can only go left and right and up and down stairs. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was a kid, we used to... Because I grew up with NES and Super Nintendo was my first console. We would just make our own maps. Now, sure, game facts existed by this point, and you mm -hmm. could go and look up maps of dungeons, but if you get lost, make a map. Mm -hmm. I think that something like that would be completely lost on children these days. Zelda 1 didn't have a map. Nope. You, you, you had, oh, hey, I'm on this screen in this big old box that's you had to, meant to represent you, the world. You had to, but... you had to learn what the world looked like and visualize landmarks in their relative space to where you were. Mm-hmm. And, and even now, it's been too many years later. If, if I'm on any particular screen in, in Zelda 1, I will have a general idea of where yep. I am and what the screens around me look like. Super Metroid did a really good job of that, especially with how, like, the game wasn't, like, spiderwebby. Mm -hmm. It had patches of spiderwebs, but yep. you could pick two screens. Like, if you could take two screenshots of two different positions... You could, odds are, you could get from one to the other in less than five minutes mm -hmm. if you knew the game well. Mm -hmm. or, or, or less than that if you knew how to glitch it well. But, yes. you know, that, that's, but that's let's a just, story. like, not a speed run, <laughs> just like your average best yeah. player. Yeah. The, the, the mapping systems for, for Metroid are, are very intuitive. And I liked that Metroid has spawned an entire genre onto itself. Yes. The, the Metroidvania style yeah. style games. You, you can only go so far until you get an item, then you have to backtrack. It opens up new paths, then you get another item yeah. to, to, go, to open up more parts of the map. And I enjoy gameplay like that. Um, I like that its map was just just detailed enough to tell you that something was where you were mm -hmm. but not detailed enough to tell you where exactly it was yeah it would tell you that you were close but you still had to think outside the box to find it which is something that about uh now go ahead with your point first fusion is probably my favorite metroid game it's slowly becoming mine yeah there there are a lot of oh, hey, I need to go to this place, so this is the path to get there. But, oh, wait, now that path is blocked, I need to find something else. Zero Mission is also like that. Yep. Um, something about... So, A Link to the Past is a Zelda game that I love, but something I hate about it is... Um, I'm going to quote uh, something from an Ego Raptor video. 
because he he nailed it perfectly um, it, with how much praise he gave A Link to the Past. It was my first Zelda. It's the Zelda I grew up on. I could make the argument that it's my favorite, but it's not. Majora's Mask has that title. But that's easily my second favorite. I played it the most of any Zelda game. But when he's talking about the map, he's like, uh, you're, you're, you have specific points on a map that tell you what dungeons are where and in what order to do them. Hmm. Uh, you're not you're not an adventurer exploring a world. You're being taken on a tour. Mm-hmm. You're no longer a premier adventurer just ex- just exploring the world in your own way. You're a guest at Disneyland. So, yes, I absolutely understand that. And and having the dungeons numbered kind of shoehorns the player into oh hey this is number one I should go there first. Yes, that's not entirely true. Once you get to the Dark World, the dungeons can be done in any order. With the exception that you have to do Palace of Darkness first. Yes. And and and, and I misspoke earlier. The knights are not in Palace of Darkness. They're in the Eastern Palace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, it, it, it makes things easier to, to do things in it's a specific order. It's a suggestion. Order. Yeah. And I, I get that, and I understand that now that I'm older. But it's like... It would almost have been nicer to happen upon a dungeon and then be able to make a note that there is something there. And then if it's too difficult, I can remember where it is and come back later. So something like uh, uh, Phantom Hourglass. Yes. Which I kind of forgot about Phantom Hourglass, to be honest. It's a sleeper title. I remember playing uh, that, it as a kid and not thinking anything too special of it and going back to it years later and loving it. That and um, the the sequel there, Spirit Tracks. Spirit Tracks I have never played. It's a game. Um, if, if I had to pick a game that I enjoyed the least, it, it might be Spirit Tracks. Th- yeah. That's not to say it's a bad game. It's just... It, 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 it didn't, Not for you. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it has to do with coming off the heels of Phantom Hourglass, which was, in turn, trying to chase what we'd ma- what made Wind Waker so magical. Yeah. So you have a game that's copying a game that's copying a game. And I think that there's a little too much tail chasing. Yeah. And and Phantom Hourglass was, was a decent game. Yeah. Even with the, the, the gripes about the Ocean Temple and needing to go back there several times i kind of like that each time you go back through you can do it faster yeah you are progressing through the temple faster because you as a character are stronger and and you are and you as a player are smarter yes and you are by familiarizing yourself with this environment you can more efficiently tackle it later yes so that you're not surprised when the game suddenly becomes harder Mm -hmm. it if it so it can become harder in a more natural way because if you do the normal part the normal difficulty part until it becomes easy the step from normal to hard feels like a step from easy to normal and then you do the the hard part until that becomes easy mm-hmm. and then they keep taking progressive steps that's what i like about uh, phantom hourglass but um there there's one game that i feel like people don't talk about enough and it, it's a spin-off title, so so of course it's not going to get enough praise, and it was difficult to play, so so that kind of contributed to it. Uh, Four Swords Adventures. Which one? 
So, Four Swords Adventures is the GameCube title. Four okay. Swords is the bonus extra pack in for the Game Boy re-release of a Link to the Past. Which, dare I say, is the more fun game on the cartridge. Yeah, yeah. So, so even that is difficult to play because of just what you need. And and maybe this was different when the games were new, but trying to play them now is is very difficult. Yes. So for those that don't know, uh, Four Swords, the 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 pack-in game, or not pack-in game, it, when they it was on the same card. Yes. When when they were released, Link to the Past for the Game Boy Advance, there was also Four Swords on the cartridge. Um, if you had up to three friends that also had Game Boy Advances and the the same cartridge and link cables, you could play this extra bonus game. Um, you you would each be a different color link who could hold one item, and you would need to go through these these different worlds, different dungeon esque things. They I were guess. kind of. Like, like, sure. like mini dungeons. That's something really like that. the best way to put it. Yeah. They're not dungeons, but they're not not dungeons. Trials. I, I yeah. So so anyway. Inconveniences. You, you go through, and since you can only carry one item each, it, it's very teamwork dependent. Yes. Um, and and you, you go through the game, and... If you individually have the most rupees collected, your cartridge will get a medal. And if you get 10 of these medals for going through 10 of these trials and getting the most rupees every time, in A Link to the Past, you get a a new move that wasn't in the original Link to the Past on Super Nintendo. You get a great spin attack that will let you keep spinning and spinning and spinning. Is that how you get that? Yes. I thought that was from the... Super Endgame dungeon that came. No, so so that's another thing. There's also a bonus dungeon yes, the, in the Four Sword Temple. Yeah, which you can't do unless you've beaten the Four Swords. Yes. Um, what I liked about that game, uh, the Four Swords, yeah, was that you did not have to have four people. Yes. So that's that's kind of the point I'm getting to. So it can be played with four people, and to get the best ending it has to be done with four people and you all have to play extremely well however it can be played with just two people that's how my brother and i used to play uh the the problem with that is you don't unlock the entire game you you need to have four people to get the entire game and see the full story i will argue though having never seen the whole story myself Hmm. for just having two players the story is the game is very passable yes it's a good game now four swords spawned its own entire game four swords adventures and this is where it gets difficult to play so you need a gamecube to run the game because it's a gamecube title yes yes however you are still split into four separate links that are all controlled independently. Unless you play the single-player campaign. Yes, you can play single-player, and then you can just use a standard game controller. It, it's fine. but Which, that is a perfectly serviceable way to play the game. Yes. You, however, you can't finish the game. Yep. You, you can't unlock everything. You, you can't see everything. To get the full experience, it has to be done with four players. To play with four players, 
each player needs a Game Boy Advance, and more importantly, a GameCube to Game Boy Advance link cable, which yep. are very difficult to find nowadays. Yep. Uh, and, and the reason for this is that each individual link can go off and do whatever they want, whenever they want. You can you can operate map independent of each yes. other. You can go inside caves or houses, etc. And in order to see where your character is, instead of throwing it up on the TV for everyone to see, that is now on your Game Boy Advance screen. So only you can see that because you're the only one there. Yep. Meanwhile, everybody who's like fighting the monster outside while you're exploring the cave just sees like a picture of your head above the cave entrance. Yeah. So so they know you're in the cave. They, they know have your no idea what they you're know doing. your location, but they don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And and finding you know four Game Boy Advances now, and and of course you're gonna want the uh, the model 101 Game Boy Advance SP because yeah. you know backlit screen, built-in rechargeable battery. Yeah. You, you don't want just the the standard AGB one with with you know no screen whatsoever and or, or no, no light whatsoever. Yeah. So that's the thing. That's that, the one I had. Um, that's I, the one I that's the one I got through Rock Tunnel with on the way to school. <laughs> I remember going to a, uh, a a local video game retailer around here and uh, wanting to buy an SP and then turning down all of the ones they had in the store because they were all Model 100 instead of Model 101. I still like the 100s. 100 is not bad. 101 is better. And if you have the choice, go 101. Yeah. And... and for anyone who doesn't know the difference between front and backlit screens, that that doesn't make a difference whatsoever. Yeah. But if you've played on a backlit screen, you're never going back to a frontlit screen. Yep. What is it? Um, I have a 100 model SP somewhere. I think I still do too. Uh, what is it? So what you brought up the GameCube to, G to GBA link cables. Yes. And that reminds me of one of my favorite games that got a very poor. Uh, remaster recently mm -hmm. was final fantasy crystal chronicles that is the only other game to use this tech yep and if you wanted to play the game runs perfectly fine in a single player adventure mm -hmm. it's hard especially toward the end but you can do it but what made that game fun was building your town with the other players that would simulate the other characters of the town mm -hmm. beating a boss and collecting a drop of myrrh for your crystal chalice and everybody gets a, a letter from home from the the male moogle and then you'd all get to like write like a response to your family members or whatever and then maybe like they sent you money to help with your adventure or something and that was cool. And you'd send them stuff and foster a better relationship with your family so that the following year, when you go out adventuring, you can go back to your family home, your family town, and your relationship with, like, your father makes your family's uh, job, like, more conducive to you. So, like, if you maxed out your relationship with your dad and you were a blacksmith, after the third... I think after the third cycle, you could only he can upgrade, can make, can forge like the best weapon mm -hmm. and so, just stuff like that. And it was such a fun experience to be able to sit down with people and play, but it was just, just pulling teeth, it, having all yeah, the pieces. Yeah. And, and I, I think this circles back to what we were saying before about uh, d 
doing what's best for the party versus what's best for the character. Yeah. Because in in games like this, in in Four Swords Adventures and Crystal Chronicles, you can just be a dick and hold up the rest of the party. Oh so, yeah. So you can just do what you're doing. But if if the rest of the party is is ready to move on, you need to be out of whatever cave that you're in. Yeah. So so the entire group can move to the next. Screen. I love the I love the freedom that it allows, but the setup to be able to manifest yes. it. Yes. It, it, like I said, it's a very difficult game to play because of all the equipment and all of the moving parts and moving people. That you I would imagine to. that Zelda was harder to play because of that. Crystal Chronicles, at least, if you were. If you were in a dungeon map, and there were only so many maps, and most of them were dungeon maps, there weren't many towns. You were a f there's a the world outside your of any town that has a crystal receptacle is flooded with poisonous miasma mm -hmm. that will kill you yep. if you're exposed to it for too long. And there's a whole there's a whole dungeon that's devoted to the concept of what happens if a crystal caravan doesn't return. Mm -hmm. um, and Tita is awesome. Armstrong is an awesome boss fight great game if you've ever played it or have an opportunity to play it try it uh, even the remaster isn't horrible but it could have been better but um so when you're in a dungeon map even with all four players you are restricted to a circle that it that is being a circle of purity i guess mm -hmm. that's being emanated by your crystal chalice so you can step outside of it, but you're not only going to get blocked by the screen not mm -hmm. going on without you, but you're also taking damage while you're outside of it. Right. So a mechanic like that was a good way to keep all the players reined in mm -hmm. pretty well. Uh, I think the only thing the GBA screen was used for was to look at the overall map of where you were. I, I think you also had like menus and spells and things. Yes. Uh, and you got, you could see like your mission objective, which is something you couldn't do mm. or see from the uh, single player experience. Yeah. So like it made, it made dungeon delving a complete crapshoot because all the bonus objectives, unless you had a GBA, you didn't know. Right. So if, and if your bonus objective was don't cast attack magic and you cast an attack spell, you just, screwed yourself out of bonus points yep and and that's another thing that i think nintendo has done very well i i always like the the little bonus things that the the interconnectivity with with everything uh wind waker is a fantastic game and i i am willing to bet that a majority of players have never heard of the tingle tuner yep never heard of the tingle tuner uh, or know what it's for mm -hmm. uh there are statues and things and and bonus things in dungeons that you can only acquire if you use the tingle tuner and the only way to use the tingle tuner was to connect a game boy advance to your gamecube yep um, didn't even need a game that made it pretty neat yeah so that's that's the other thing um these game boy advances are actually very intelligent systems yes um you can run them as their own computer without a cartridge um and and i've i've delved into some of the the homebrew hacky piratey stuff and and um the communication port there um the the link cable port can actually be used to dump cartridge data yep and and 
and, and not just dump it, but actually write to the cartridge. That's what made the e-reader so cool. Yeah. I, that's... The e-reader is a fantastic item, and, and I am upset that it did not see as much widespread use as Remember it did. when you used to be able to go to McDonald's and get e-reader cards from mm -hmm. your Happy Meal? Mm -hmm. I miss those days. For Animal Crossing? I remember um, one of my my big purchases on, on eBay, honestly, was buying an e-reader and an Eon ticket. So I, I bought the, the card that I could scan into Ruby and Sapphire that would give me either Latios or Latias, depending on which one was already running in my game. Yep. And, and like, that is such... Uh, uh, an interesting you don't need that nope. but it's fun to have oh yeah and and there were were trainer cards too you you could scan in trainers to fight in in a hidden battle house thing that mm -hmm. otherwise had nothing in it but you could pull in all of these super powerful trainers just by scanning a card yep and and that's amazing and it, it's really we've come so far with technology because for, for a lot of the Pokemon trainers that I'm talking about all of that data is stored inside the game cartridge and you can access it with, with cheat codes whatever etc there are other e-reader cartridge or e-reader cards where all of the data for whatever game you're scanning in is printed on the card. Yep. So so there were classic NES games that, that came on a series of cards. We'll say one game had four cards. You plug in the e-reader to your Game Boy Advance, you scan the four cards, and then you can remove the e-reader and play the game on your Game Boy Advance that does not have a cartridge in it for as long as that system has power. Yep. You, you have entirely written this NES game into the system's RAM by scanning four printed cards. And That's we just, like, we, we, that, we let that technology that was, die? That was what? the future. That was amazing. No, I miss the e-reader. I miss that era. Like yes. 2001, 2005 era of like niche gaming. Mm-hmm. And and it it's it wasn't limited to Pokemon either. Animal Crossing made heavy use yep. of the e-reader. You could scan in villagers. You could scan in patterns. You could change your town tune by scanning in a card. You could also change it without doing that. But yeah, well, but but now you have oh hey this I, I like this this town tune. I want to save it, but I don't you really want to. You could not buy, have a card for it. You could buy really hard things to find on the market. Mm-hmm on sale mm -hmm. because Tom Nook wouldn't always sell everything at an agreeable price. So if you could find the card that had the one piece yep. of furniture, you didn't have to max out your happy room Academy points. And uh, you could buy it. You could download it to your animal crossing world. And then Tom Nook would have it at a discount because screw him. And I believe there were some villagers that were exclusive to the e-reader cards. The yep. only way to get them would be to, have them move in from someone else's town who had them or to scan them in with a card. Yep. And and Animal Crossing is such a bigger game than than people realize and at the same time is tiny. Yep. So so like 
usually when you're playing a GameCube game, and, and uh, this whole time I'm talking about the GameCube version, not, not the Switch version, not the Wii, specifically the GameCube version. Usually when you're playing a GameCube game, you don't want to touch the GameCube at all whatsoever because it's constantly reading from the disc to, to pull data. That's not true with, with Animal Crossing. Yep. You only need the disc when you're saving. Yep. If you really wanted to, while you're playing the game... You could load the game up. And then remove the disc. I, there, there's no reason to do that, but you could because the game is so small, everything is in RAM. Yep. And, and not only that, but things we've learned about the game all of these years later, there was going to be an emulator in the game. Yep. So, so like, there are specific items in Animal Crossing that will let you play classic NES games. You can play Balloon Fight, you can play Wario's Woods, you know, classic games. Zelda, Punch-Out. Hold off on Zelda. So that that's we'll, we'll circle back to Zelda. Punch-Out, Mario, the original Mario Brothers. We'll circle back to the original Mario. Oh, my God. So... so Yoshi's Cookie. Yes, you're going to play Yoshi's Cookie. So uh, there there are some items in Animal Crossing that you could place in your house, and then when you interacted with them, it would load up these games. However, there was one game that, or, or one item that showed as, you know, just an NES that didn't have any game associated with it, and when you interacted with it, it would say there is no game or, or something to that effect. What we have learned since then is that when you interact with this item, it's actually probing the memory card. So it, it's looking on your memory card for a game to load and then not finding one because Nintendo never actually released any of these. Hmm. However, hackers have modified their memory cards to to put these games on there and then actually gotten this NES item to load a ROM from the memory card and be able to play the game with Animal Crossing on the GameCube. That's awesome. So, so I, I believe it was Mega Man. Someone got someone was able to play Mega Man in Animal Crossing on the GameCube on a classic NES emulator loading from the memory card because why not? Yeah. Um, so with Zelda and Mario, the data for them is in the game. You can find them within the game and play them. However, there is no legitimate way to acquire them. Uh, the, the password system to obtain items from a friend is is well documented and has been completely reverse engineered. There there is a password checker you can put in online to give yourself whatever item you want whenever you want, and and that's fine. That, that that's a feat of engineering to reverse engineer something like that. However, there are four specific game titles that are called the Forbidden Four. They do not have passwords. There is no way to legitimately acquire these, even with 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 password generators. You have to use a Game Shark or, or Action Replay, so, some cheat device. Um, 
what it's believed is these games would be released specifically by Nintendo and and they would be the ones who let you have access to these games. There, there was never supposed to be a way to acquire them. They, they would just, you know, special event. Oh, hey, you have this game now. Great, fantastic. Um, so they're, they're in... They're in the game, you just can't get them unless you cheat, even with the passwords being decoded. What else? And, and Animal Crossing was also a game that had connectivity to the Game Boy Advance. You could use a Game Boy Advance link cable and sail off to an island that you otherwise would not have access to, to um, have your own specific tropical island villager that uh, could potentially have a different fruit than what is on on your town already. Um, it the, the tropical island pulls from a group of villagers that you would otherwise not have access to, uh, with with their own specific personalities and 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 whatnot, and. There are some items that you could only get or, or was easier to get through this island. Uh, I believe Wario's Woods was one of those items. Um, and the, the tropical shirts you could only get through the, uh, the island. And on top of that, you could load this island entirely into the Game Boy Advance's RAM and take the island with you away from the Game Boy, or away from the GameCube. And I believe you could connect your island to someone else's GameCube and, and transfer things that way. I'm, I'm not 100% on that. Hmm. But j- just the connections that these Nintendo devices have and, and all of the, the, the stuff that's just locked behind it. I really, I really like stuff like that. Yeah, it, it is difficult to access now, and it is becoming increasingly difficult to access. But I, I miss things like that. I was stricken by a moment of clarity and come to realize we never said what our least favorite Zelda game was. Uh, I think I was trying to cycle back to that when yes. talking about a link to the past yeah. map system. Yeah, so. I, I think my least favorite is Four Swords Adventures, not because it's a bad game, but because it's difficult to experience the full game. Yeah. I think mine would have to be all of the CDI Zeldas. <laughs> well, if you're going to go there. So this is going to be a really awkward way to end episode one, but Audacity decided it would be cool to cut the last hour of the first episode of the show. Uh, Decided to completely corrupt all of the sound and make it this really weird, warbly, distorted noise that can't even be understood. And uh, I went and I talked to Scott about it. I said, what are we going to do? And ultimately, we came to the decision that the last hour of the episode, right after where I cut it off here, Uh, we start talking about a completely different topic. And both of us decided, you know what? It would probably be best if we save that for its own episode. So while you guys may be missing out on another hour of us just rambling, being idiots, and talking about whatever the hell we want, 
it would do well as its own episode so we can fully unpack it in its own way and explore all the deep, you know, little nuances of the topic. But I'm going to leave that a secret because we might talk about it on the next episode of the show. But as for this one, thank you everybody who stuck around till the end. Uh, I know this was a very long inaugural episode and we were kind of all over the place, but we're still getting new to this. We haven't been really practicing any of this for more than a month at this point, and neither of us has any professional experience in podcasting previous to this. So it's kind of a learning on the job kind of thing. But we hope that you guys enjoyed what you heard, and uh, hopefully same time next week, uh, I plan to put out another episode. We record these a week in advance, and which gives me time to edit them down and like take out like dead air and stuff like that. So hopefully we can get a weekly upload of the show going. I don't think there's going to be another episode quite this long, but you never know. But once again, I can't stress enough how thankful I am to anybody that stuck around, to all the people that are listening to this in the first place. We really think we have something going here. We used to be like this at work all the time, and uh, people used to enjoy it. So I'm hoping that broadcasted on a much larger spectrum that even more people can enjoy the mad ramblings of two people that just get lost in our own imagination. So until next time, friends, uh, thanks uh, and keep being awesome.